I'm Jonathan Goldson, Director of Ethical Imperatives and author of Grappling with the Gray, an ethical handbook for personal success and business prosperity. And today we're going to talk about the challenge of being good versus being successful, of trying to find our moral compass, of balancing our responsibility towards ourselves with a responsibility towards others. I'm going to incorporate some of the ideas I've talked about in my speeches and my keynotes and my TEDx talk. And we're going to really try to bring out an understanding of what we can do to contribute to a more successful world that we get to live in. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is part three of my delicious and totally kosher episode of Curiosity Bites with Rabbi Yonasan Goldson. He is the director of Ethical Imperatives. He has been teaching professionals how good ethics is good for business. He's a keynote speaker, he's a TEDx speaker, he's a coach, he's a trainer. He was a newspaper columnist. Um, he is the author of six books and his latest book is called Grappling with the Gray. It's an ethical handbook for professional, uh, for personal success and business prosperity. Um, and we've, we've gone into morality and what that is in the last episode. And we looked at that struggle with the, the moral code. How do we find that? And, you know, even in chapter one, in part one, um, the rabbi was explaining to us that the root of the word uh, ethics and morals is the same root. But now we're sort of going to explore a little bit more because when we finished up in the last section was this idea of um, the spirit of the law versus the word of the law and the uh, the way that things get manipulated by by holding to the word of the law, but not looking at the spirit of the law, and that's not just talking about in a religious sense, but even in a even in a, a judicial sense, in a in a political sense. Let's jump off from there, Jonathan. Tell us, so take us into that a bit, if you could. Well, we're we're all familiar with the concept of loopholes. Yes, because the truth bit. is. <laughs> You can't legislate anything without creating loopholes for getting around it. Mm -hmm. It's just the limitations of human thought and language. Right. And that means that if there isn't a commitment to doing what's right, to the spirit of the law, to the intent of the law, mm -hmm that your laws are simply not going to help you. And in fact, we may have mentioned before that compliance can become the enemy of ethics. Yes. When you try to legislate every moral decision, every ethical decision, and inevitably what happens is you end up with a code of laws that's so cumbersome that it's unmanageable. Often laws end up contradicting each other mm -hmm. because you're trying to plug the holes. And most fundamentally, you're forfeiting that attitude of commitment to what's right. Mm -hmm. You know, even the framers said this when they when they when they constructed the, the Constitution. Um, and here we're talking about men who were not all deeply religious. Right? Benjamin Franklin and, and Thomas Jefferson were deists which yeah. means they believed in a God who's out there somewhere, but really has absolutely no engagement 
in human affairs. Right. And yet they all agreed there has to be some kind of a commitment to something higher than oneself, than higher to the, the higher than the utilitarian value of, of what's being presented. There has to be a commitment, an idealism. We want to do the right thing. We want to make this work. We want to accommodate the complexity of our society in a way that strives for equity and justice and virtue, even though we know that we're going to fall short. Right. And the system's going to be imperfect. Yeah. And that we're not always going to get it right. But if there isn't that underlying commitment, then the whole process is destined to fail. But even there, we um, maybe we fall. Maybe maybe we fall apart because we are trying to guide three hundred plus million people. You know, um, and if you are, I, I honestly believe that the majority of people are good. I believe that with every fiber of my being. Um, I believe the majority of people are good, and I believe that the majority of people want to do good, but that good is within the context of what they believe. And so, unfortunately, what they believe is often uh, certainly is subjective. As we talked about earlier, it's, it's adopted from somewhere else rather than being their own. And then you get this high moral ground, like back to morality, um, which creates things like Bill Three, uh, Bill C sixteen in in Canada, which um, created a law for pronouns that you have to refer to people in the right pronouns, which then removes um, freedom of of me to speak the way I want to speak, and so now my freedom of speech is gone. So you want to protect my freedom of speech? I get that, and you want me to to legislate that I use the right pronouns. Uh, I have a problem with that if I am going to support freedom of speech. Now, if you ask me to use a pronoun for you, I'll use it. I don't have a problem with that. But if you legalize me to use it, I'm kind of going to be a bit of a Socrates. I'm going to be a bit of a rebel. I'm going to come up and say, yeah, you know what? Screw you. You don't get to tell me how to be. So where this is, again, grappling with the gray, and I, that's why I'm so happy to have this combo with you, is because both sides of that are people wanting to do good I, I you know I I I, uh, I have some moral issues with a lot of people in politics but I think that most of them most of them entered into that realm because they wanted to do something good many of them have lost their way in my opinion but I think that they entered from that place they wanted to do good so What's your guidance around this when we see, like, you know, Bill uh, C-16, which is doing good, protecting people who are, who are uh, otherwise pronounced <laughs> from the binary. And then on the other side of that is this freedom of speech, which is also wanting to do good and, and let people be them, themselves. How do you confront that? Well, I, I've wondered over over the years that we we have a concept called civility mm -hmm. 
and the the Yale professor uh, Stephen L. Carter, who's written some wonderful books on on these subjects, um, he he points out very astutely and in hindsight, obviously, that civility is the foundation of civilization. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to be civil? Civil means that I have an awareness of how, I, how my actions, my speech affect you. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is very close to my definition of ethics as well. Yeah. Well, then we decided that we needed a new name and we started calling it political correctness. Right. Well, what's the difference? If it was working as civility, or if we had civility, why do we need political correctness? Mm -hmm. And what I see is that civility is me taking responsibility for my behavior towards you. Right. And political correctness is me imposing on you how you need to act towards me. So that political correctness becomes weaponized civility. Yes. And that's where we get into problems. And on a more fundamental level, and this is the whole discussion, as you just framed it, between rights and responsibilities. Yes. In Judaism, we're very big on responsibilities. We're not big on rights. Because mm -hmm. if I'm being responsible towards you and you're being responsible towards me, our rights are going to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. As long as we both have that commitment to ensuring the rights of the other, to, mm -hmm. uh, to upholding our own personal responsibilities. And again, when the government starts imposing on us responsibility, then we're back to the compliance laws. Right. Don't think, don't choose, just follow. There are no ethical or moral judgments. It all becomes dogmatized. Yes. And once you have that, you're not, you're not going to have a functioning society anymore because it breeds a mindset of, I'm doing what I have to do. I'm following the rules. I'm in compliance. What can I get away with? I'm doing my job. Now I want mine. Yeah. So what was it you said? Compliance is the enemy of? Compliance is the enemy of ethics. I said that, that, um, Civil, uh, political correctness is weaponized civility. Yes. Yeah, it, it's... And now we have the um, cancel culture, which is just yeah, another exactly. Step, right? I don't like your ideas, I'm shutting you down. Yeah, I, I just... You know, it, you and I are not kids. And we're old enough to remember uh, an America that wasn't great even though we're apparently trying to get back to an America great, but anyway, um, that was Reagan's, that was Reagan's banner first before Donald Trump took it. Um, and it was make America great again. Where is the, again, because the civil rights movement was horrendous in the 1960s, uh, the 1950s women were repressed. I mean, I don't know. There's a, there's a, a, a you know, the original state of that, and I think that we've, we've got to move forward in looking back is, is useful, but it's not instructive. Very uh, usually we need to, if it's instructive, it's away from not towards. Um, and I think that, yes, these things have come to, to fore in the political correctness and the counterculture, council culture. Yes, I agree. 
a lot of those things are crazy and have gone crazy. And I'm a lefty, right? And I think they've gone nuts. I think they've, they're mental and I'm definitely not in favor of them. But at the same time, I get it. I understand why they're there. I understand why they want to do it. But it's it seems to me like a system that, you know, we can talk about ethics, we can talk about morals, but where we come down to is personal responsibility in my world, personal responsibility. But then my where we come into the gray there is personal responsibility now falls into subjectivity. And in subjectivity, well, it's okay for me to do this because I'm personally responsible for my reality and I'm staying with this and this is what it is. Well, a lot of time that that's pretty bad and it's not really helping anybody else. And, you know, you and I talked off air about the Ayn Rand mentality. I mean, and I see that more than ever. I mean, I, you know, I grew up you know, 30 years ago reading Ayn Rand and it, it seems like it's become... I, th I think on one side where, you know, the political correctness on the other side is almost Ayn Rand as the goddess of narcissism, you know, that a bunch of people are following. But each side of those has this subjective morality, this subjective righteousness that they would claim as responsibility. This, this, is, a, this is my grappling with the gray in what I see as a human being who wants to, by my nature, wants to love people and wants to see the good in them. What, so what's me, your me, feedback on this? Yes, let me jump in because, the, the, Please. again, Jewish tradition has, has a model for this that, that is very instructive and helpful. Um, there, there, 2,000 years ago, there were two great uh, academies of Jewish study, the House of, uh, the Academy of Shammai, the Academy of Hillel. And they, the, the, the history records that when they, when they debated in the study hall, they were so yeah. passionate, it was, it was as if they fought with swords and spears. Yes. And yet, when they left the study hall, they were friends. Yes. It never got personal. They married the sons and daughters to each other. Mm -hmm. Now, we were told that the scholars of Shammai were sharper, brighter, more incisive. And yet... The rulings almost exclusively follow the House of Hillel. Yeah. Right? Why? Okay, they were the majority, you follow the majority. But more, more essentially than that, whenever the scholars of Hillel would express an idea or a point of view, they would always cite the opposing point of view. And they always cited it first. Because if you don't understand the opposing point of view, you don't have the perspective to really understand your own. Mm. You don't have a totality. You don't have a fullness of vision, of, of picture. When you had testimony in the high court in a capital case, they wouldn't let two brothers testify together because they were afraid that growing up in the same home, mm -hmm. same unconscious biases, yep. same value system, they might misperceive in the same way. Yes. When they ruled on a capital case, you had, you had to have at least 
a high court of 23 sages, you needed a supermajority to convict. But if you had a unanimous majority, they wouldn't give the death penalty. Because if there weren't a single person who could find some reason to acquit, they didn't trust themselves mm. that they had examined every possible angle on the subject. That's the kind of intellectual integrity that makes a system work. Before I assert my point of view, I make sure I understand yours because I wanna see the whole picture and I wanna have a complete view and I wanna get it right, I don't wanna win. And if it turns out, I, I, I frequently quote my college professor, he said, he never understood why people complain about being disillusioned. He said, I would like to be relieved of my illusions. <laughs> yes, it's a very good point. And, and I, remember, I remember saying, yeah, though, that's you. <laughs> right. Most of us are so invested yep. in what we've already decided we believe mm -hmm. that we'd rather persist in being wrong than discover that we're right. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work. You know, you've brought up something there that I think is uh, profoundly important. I mean, aside from seek first to, to understand rather than being understood, which I think is, is what I call moral fiber, seek first to understand. Um, but I love the, the example you brought up of, you know, if it is... There's no doubt, you know, everybody says guilty, there's a problem. Uh, the, the other side has not been presented well enough. And I mean, it, it's exactly the opposite of the way we work in the world today, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, unanimity is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, you know, it really brings to mind this idea of, like, I, it's the thing I, I struggle with the most. I've said for years, I believe that the cause of all war is in the egoic need to be right. That's it. Whether that's the war between me and my wife, between me and my children, between two friends, between governments, between countries, there's a need to be right. But what am I being right about? And in, in fact, it's my value system my ethic, what I call my ethics, my morals, my beliefs, because in the structure of it, don't we, and again, I'm, I want your feedback on this, in the structure of it, don't we build our ethics, our morals, our righteousness on our beliefs? And if we build them on our beliefs, my experience of 30 odd years of doing what I do and teaching people about how to dismantle beliefs is that most people's beliefs are not theirs. So you're judging everybody on whether they're right or wrong based on beliefs that are not even your own. How do you confront that, you know, from you, from the work you're doing with morals and ethics and et cetera? Well, I, I think you've already said it. And, and you mentioned it earlier, which made me think of, of the concluding line of my TED talk, which is when I asked the audience, where do you get your beliefs? Right. Did you choose them or did they choose you? 
Did you reason your way to them or did you absorb them from your parents and your teachers and your peers and, and the media and the entertainment industry? Um, you know, we're all products of our environment. Yeah. And that's how, that's how we start. We were talking about that in the beginning. We have, yes. You absorb your parents' values, you absorb your community values, and you turn a teenager and you rebel against everything. And, and at some point, ideally, we develop, again, the intellectual integrity to take a step back and ask, how did I get here? Right. And that question's only meaningful if I make the effort to understand why people see things differently. Yes. If I don't understand why you believe what you believe, how can I be sure you're wrong? Mm -hmm. And if I don't understand why you're disagreeing with me, how can I be sure I'm right? Yes. So it comes back to exactly what you said. Do I want to be right? Do I want to find truth or get as close as I can? Or do I want, do I want to win? Yes. Or do I want to justify what I've already decided is what's right? You know, and, and so, yeah. you know, now, now we've got this, this corrosive phenomenon called groupthink, where we only associate with people who believe the way we do. Some of these famous quotes over time, I don't know anybody who voted for Richard Nixon. I don't know anybody <laughs> who voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. Well, <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing about it is I did, I did a, a video a long time ago, in which I said the worst advice you ever got is surround yourself with like-minded people. Uh, um, and I said, and the argument in there was because th that advice is followed by every algorithm on social media. Yeah. It's constantly giving you the information you believe and you never expand. That was one of the reasons I wanted to put together this show. I don't want, I mean, I, it's nice that people who, who are on who I agree with, but I also want people who are going to push against me and help me to break through and help me to understand that it's not always the right way. And I think that that's our biggest challenge is we're surrounding ourselves with like-minded people. We stay in the Fox bubble. We stay in the MSNBC or the CNN bubble. We stay in the Jewish bubble. We stay in the Christian bubble. We stay in all these stupid bubbles instead of expanding and going, hold on a second, let me really hear it. You know, uh, it's one of my guests on this show was Tony Mack. Tony Mack was the lead recruiter for the neo-Nazi movement in, in Western Canada. Uh, he, he very kindly credits me with de-radicalizing him, but it wasn't about de-radicalizing. We spoke at the UN together and they said, how did you de-radicalize him? And I said, Tony, did I ever use those words? And he went, no, because it wasn't about de-radicalizing. It was about finding common ground, finding where we could stand together so that when we had those conversations and one of the conversations we had was with the lead recruiter for Al-Qaeda, who is now works at the George Washington University for the same reason, finding that common ground, understanding the humanity below all this stuff. And I think that this is where that whole uh, ret rhetoric of morals and, and ethics, not real morals and ethics, but the rhetoric of it starts to just be corrosive because it's based on a subjectivity based on a set of beliefs that somebody has just bloody adopted rather than questioned, right? You know, because I have friends who are very religious Jews and very religious Christians and 
and they're friends with each other and it's great. Right? I've got friends who voted for Trump. I've got friends who think Trump should be burned at the stake and it's all fine. It's good because that makes us better as human beings. It allows us to expand. Absolutely. So is, I mean, it's in the way you're seeing it though, what I'm trying to understand from you, Jonathan, is is, meth, is is ethics the solid middle ground? Or is in that even in itself, ethics and morals, is that even a gray area? I, I think by definition, the, the uh, what does gray mean? <laughs> it means it's, it's not clear. Right. And, and you have competing values, competing priorities. You know, again, if you go back to Jonathan Haidt, who's got these six different um, uh, metrics, he calls them the, your, your sensory receptors. And he demonstrates how liberals and conservatives and libertarians have different emphasis on different ones. If we all recognize that these are all authentic moral axioms, and that we're really what we're really arguing about is our own personal priorities. Yep. It becomes a whole different conversation. We're not really struggling with essential principles that are different. And you know, to get into a, a, another aspect on this, and, and he talks about this, and Jordan Peterson talks about this, the you know, liberalism, conservatism, they need each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's wrong with respecting tradition and respecting the past and respecting history? What's wrong with having a forward vision of a better world? But if they aren't in balance, balance isn't the right word, if they're not in, in constant engagement with one another, yes, then conservatism calcifies into reactionaryism and liberalism mutates into irrational utopianism and you end up with the kind of insanity frankly <laughs> that we're seeing <laughs> that we're seeing yeah and the polarization i mean we just went through an election here with two candidates that nobody well not nobody um a lot of people didn't like either one as was the same in 2016 yeah most people voted against. I mean, the research is there. You can go look it up. The research is there. Most people voted against and not for. They right. voted against Donald Trump or they voted against Hillary Clinton. And by virtue of that, that's not voting for. And you don't have a moral or ethical leg to stand on because you're voting against, not for. Right. You can't question that which you don't vote for. Yeah. And, and you know, my point of view was I've got two unacceptable candidates. I'm not buying into this. Mm -hmm. I'm voting third party, even though I don't have a candidate, even though right. I know my, my, I know, my, no, I'm not, it's not going to win, but at least I can register my, um, my refusal to make that binary choice when neither choice is acceptable to me. Uh, and, you know, I, I really appreciate that about you, Jonasen, when we, when we spoke before. Um, because, uh, you know, as a Jew who lived in Israel, 
um, it would be right. <laughs> I did put that in air quotes uh, to vote for the Republican candidate uh, because they tend to be Israel focused, although the left of, you know, under Barack Obama and such were very also. But, you know, that that relationship is a very important one to Israel as a as the Zionist state. Um, I'm never, never going to be a single. I'm never going to be a single issue voter. I mean, if you look at Trump's accomplishments, exactly. I mean, extraordinary accomplishments. There's just one problem. He's Trump. Yes. And you go back to Stephen Carter, who has a quote that I love, and think he remember he wrote this 20 years ago, um, or longer. He said, "I'm looking forward to a time." when people will say, I agree with candidate so-and-so because of his policies, but I can't vote for someone who would behave the way he behaves. Right. And, and so we're back to a moral code, right? And, it, it, and, and so some people say, well, listen, we have to choose one. All right. I mean, I, I hear it. <laughs> I don't agree with it, but I hear it. But I don't know that the, I I don't know that that's true. And I think that in many ways that's the problem with the American political system is that there is essentially two two people to vote for, and if you think they both suck, right, then you're seen as throwing away your vote. But I think there's a vote against the system in the form that it is in yes. by voting for a third party, and it may be quote a throwaway vote based on what they say but when you can't stand on the moral ground of either of those places then you 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 have to come back to yourself and what's true for you and what you where you morally and ethically stand and i think that that's an important piece but yeah, and I, I, I had this conversation with uh, with a friend of mine is a he's a fire breathing libertarian who's extremely pro trump and you know, and he and I was trying to articulate this this idea to him, and he actually said to me, "You're the one who's not being ethical because you're not voting policy." Mm -hmm. And I said, "You can't measure the damage that is done to a society when you have a leader." You know, King Solomon in, in Ecclesiastes says, woe to you, O nation, whose king acts like an adolescent. Yes. You think that was written last week or 3,000 years ago? <laughs> I think it was last week. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Yeah. King Solomon of, uh, what was the name of that country in Europe? <laughs> you, you, there, there are intangibles that have to be taken into account mm -hmm. and you have to look at the whole person and so i mean listen i'm sympathetic you've got choices sure. there are no good choices you got to make a choice where there are no good choices and i can understand the people who said trump's vile i'm voting for biden i can understand the people who are saying i'm scared of biden or trump's done good things i'm voting for trump but again we come back to this idea that life is just too complicated. Yeah, I think that uh, what I'm loving about this conversation and about your, where you're coming from with the book is I, I was not looking to come on here and have this conversation with you and 
solve the problem and say, this is right, this is wrong. Uh, my purpose in having this conversation and bringing you on for this show was to have people see that in fact, we live in the gray. We might want to live in the black or the white, but we live in the gray. And the only way for us to be better human beings is to accept that everybody actually lives in the gray. They may claim the black, they may claim the white, but they live in the gray because if you're um, anti-LGBTQ uh, and you find out your kid's gay, you suddenly might have a change of mind. You know, if you're, if you're anti-Muslim and your daughter or your son falls in love with somebody who's Muslim, you might open up a little bit. So there is this subjective reality um, that softens us and allows us to see that things are not blatantly black or white, you know, and, and I know I frustrate some of my friends when I say, well, you know, this policy of Trump's was a good policy. And they're like, how can you say, listen, I think the guy's a douchebag, but that's him. And I don't think that a lot of his policies that he made are good policies that he made because of great choices. I think it's a reaction. A lot of his thing is got nothing to do with him being a high thinking individual because I don't think he is. That's my opinion. But at the same time, I cried and was happy when Barack Obama was, um, was voted in. I was happy that a man of color was there. I was happy that a guy who could speak, who was articulate was there after it had the decider. The decider was the president. Um, but at the same time, there was a lot of policy I was very much against with Barack Obama. So it, it's not about these absolutes. And I think that that's the, the, uh, the lesson I love from you that you're bringing forward that this is not about the absolutes, but it is about challenging us to look at ourselves and hold ourselves responsible and accountable to that. And in the next section of the show, I want to talk about bringing that to business because this is not the leadership show. That's my other podcast. But I think that bringing it to leadership, we're talking a little bit here about bringing it to leadership at a national and potentially political level, but even at a very much bringing it to the world of economics, because I think morality is easy to easier to be in if you're not desperate, right? It's easier to be moral if you're not desperate. Um, so is a murderer a murderer, as a, as a moral example, is a murderer a murderer if it's self-defense? The answer is no. Or is a murderer a murderer if that person has everything and you have nothing and everybody you know is starving to death and they are gloating in their greed and they get killed, is that a murder? It's not my decision. I'm just putting it forward as a moral dilemma. <laughs> I'm putting it forward on a purpose as a moral dilemma to finish the end of this show as we come back and we'll come back for part four of the show. Um, before I do uh, end this part of the show, uh, Rabbi, I would love for you, we're going to do it again later, but love for you to tell our viewers, our listeners, where they can find out more about you and, and your books and, and what you offer. Easiest place is my website, which is my name. Yonason Goldson, Y-O-N-A-S-O-N, G-O-L-D-S-O-N.com. Uh, very active on LinkedIn. Yeah, a little less so on some of the other 
social media, but uh, always looking for opportunities to, to continue the conversation. Yeah, and if you go on to uh, Jonasson's site, you'll uh, onto his website and even onto his LinkedIn, you'll find the link to his uh, TEDx talk. You'll be able to find out about that and you'll be able to see all the different pieces that he's written. And there's a lot for you to grasp there as resources. And uh, this should unravel you. I hope it unravels you a little bit from uh, any rigidity you might have about something, not to make you wrong, but to have you deepen and widen to, ex as to expand your own consciousness and your own uh, ideas of who you are, what you are, and what it is you believe, and the same about other people. So we're going to be back with part four, our final part of this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites with my wonderful guest, Rabbi Jonasson Goldson. We'll be back for part four. Till then, stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. <laughs>